sometimes um, life doesn't go according to plan. Sometimes it's probably an understatement. Almost always it seems like life doesn't go according to plan, right? Like you, you have a day set out where you're going to do this and that and the other and you end up doing none of those things or, or you really have a goal to, to do and accomplish or be and none of it ever seems to work out because the, the thing for us is that life just doesn't work out as we planned. I, I uh, have to admit to you, um, I've now lived almost 31 years, which is a very, very long time and makes me feel very old. So if you're older than that, you know what I think about you. Um, but I don't think that's funny. I am old. Like, all right. So, um, but anyways, I've lived almost 31 years now, and I'm still learning and still remembering that life doesn't go as planned. And that there are always times and there are always moments in my life that just don't work out. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I do, no matter how much I want to accomplish, what happens is that life gets interrupted and things don't work out like I wanted them to. Today, we we kick off this series at the movies, and we're going to look at a movie where pretty much the whole movie is the story of things not going the way that they wanted them to. And uh, we decided to take this in a little bit different twist. Uh, Instead of, you know, doing new popular movies or movies that just came out, we thought it would be neat to kind of dig through our Netflix and see what movies were on Netflix that we could kind of watch and and learn a spiritual lesson from and and see what we could apply to our lives. And so we we kind of tried to pick a variety of movies. And over the next four weeks, you'll see that. But but each movie is a movie that we kind of, Justin and I, as as we were playing in this, kind of hold dear to to our life and and our heart, and, and I, I, picked, I picked today's movie because it came out at a time when I needed it the most. The movie um, features a guy named Alex Hitchens, who is a date doctor, and his goal in the movie Hitch is to fix men up with women who are way out of their league. And the story about the date doctor is that he's this smooth-talking, way, you know, Rico Suave kind of guy who can convince any guy to get a girl to date him and fall in love with him and eventually get married. And it's this story of, of how he, gets, he, get, he coaches guys to get women to fall in love with him. The reason this movie was so important to me is that it came out in 2005 when I was still in high school. And uh, if Hitch was a smooth-talking Rico Suave type, I was the opposite of all of those things. Still am, probably, but I'm married, so I don't care. Um, but I was laughing because I was thinking about when this movie came out in high school and how awkward it was to be me, right? Like, you might remember junior high and high school for you. Maybe it was awkward. Um, but I was laughing. I, every time I think about it, as I, as I stroll through my, my high school yearbook, there are three different pictures of me in my high school yearbook where my T-shirt is just covered in sweat from my armpits, um, which may or may not also be happening right now. Um, but but I, uh, in my senior year in high school, had this hair thing going on. You've probably seen it before. If not, let me know. I'll show it to you. It's my favorite hair, where my hair was like down past my eyes, and it was terrible and awful, and I don't know why anyone ever let me leave the house like it, but it was cool when I was 18. And, and women were not necessarily flocking to me. Um, I don't know why they wouldn't have been going to the chubby, awkward guy who won Class Clown. I'll never figure that out. But um, So when, I, when Hitch came out, it gave me hope. Because the story of Hitch is him taking the chubby, awkward, nerdy guy and, and getting him to, to find and marry girls out of their league. And I was like, this is me! 
It took me uh, a six more years to meet my wife because I had to have a lot of practice and a lot of times watching Hitch. But the favorite thing I have about my favorite thing about Hitch isn't that he gets other guys to go on dates and to, to be smooth, but it's that if you watch the movie, you know the story, and you know that Hitch tries to get this girl Sarah to fall for him. And after all of his years of coaching and planning and date doctoring, Hitch has the hardest time getting Sarah to fall for him. And so, um, spoiler alert, the movie's 14 years old, so I'm going to ruin the ending for you. Um, but but the, whole, the whole story is, is how no matter what he plans, no matter how well he thinks it's going to go, Hitch seems to have a problem on every single date that he takes Sarah on. This is my favorite problem that he has, so we're going to watch this clip real quick so you know what I'm talking you know, about. I must have sucked up a diaper or something. Gross. Try it again. <laughs> you want me to call AAA? Come on around and let me hop on with you. I don't know. What if you break mine too? Then we'll both be sitting ducks. I didn't break it. It just died. Yeah, yeah. All right, oh, hop geez. on. <laughs> uh, scoot back. Hitch, I'm already here. Well, yeah, but you don't know where we're going. Well, why don't you tell me, and then we'll both know. Sarah? Uh, man, male egos. I don't know how you guys make it through the day with them. What? No, it is not my ego. I just, I don't want to ruin the surprise. I think actually the reason that I relate most to this movie is I never kicked a date in the face, but I have more than once hurt a date with my awkward clumsiness. Like, sorry, I didn't mean to elbow you. I didn't forgot you were there. Like, it happens. So, so the whole movie of Hitch, you know, so he takes her on, on the jet ski. They go to Ellis Island, and it's there that he um, finds her first relative who came across Ellis Island. Turns out he's like a mass murderer that her whole family's ashamed of. On their second date, um, they go to this cooking thing and they and they cook and he eats shellfish which it turns out he's allergic to and his face swells up and it ruins the date and and the story of hitch is just time after time of these great well-meaning well-intentioned plans falling apart all the time and it's kind of the story of of you and me right i mean it's the story of us having these plans having these intentions and knowing that what we're going to do who we're going to be how we're going to act never really comes to fruition like we thought it would. And, and it's interesting because when you talk about plans, inevitably you get around to talking about God's plan. And what, ha- what happens is a lot of times when we think about God's plan, we think about this big picture, grandiose vision of the next 40 years of our life and, and what might happen and, and where we'll be and how we'll end up. And I think for a lot of us what happens is when we do that, we miss something really important. I encourage you, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, Justin talked about our plans versus God's plans, and he talked about how it was his goal in life to be a professor and to have a PhD and all that, and God wrecked his plans and ended up sending him here, and like, the poor guy's been punished for that for like nine months, you know. Um, it's okay, he, you know, whatever. Um, but, so Justin's been here instead of going off to get his PhD in history and, and all of those things. And, and so it's interesting, you know, to think about the grand plans of your life. But I think often what happens is that we look at things like our day-to-day and we don't necessarily believe that God has an intent for that. 
We think that God has a vision for, for the next 40 years for us, for the next 10 years for us, but we don't really know that he's that concerned with what we're doing tomorrow. Because tomorrow, we have to get everybody to school. We have to go to work. After work we've, you know, at work, we've got three meetings. After work, we've got to get one kid to soccer practice, one kid to the orthodontist. We've got to get another kid you know, over here, another over there. We've got three things to do here, and then we've got to get dinner on the table. At some point, we have to have everybody doing homework, and then we're going to have some quality family time for at least five minutes where everybody's going to put their phone away and think about how much they wish they had their phone out. And then after that, things will get really fine, and we'll chill out, and then everybody will go to bed, and we'll wake up and do it all again. So there's not really a moment to breathe. And so when you start thinking about your plans getting interrupted or you start thinking about God being involved in your day-to-day plans, it's not necessarily something that you're open to. But I wonder if because we're so busy and because we're so mapped out that we find ourselves missing out on the interruptions and the moments that God sent for each of us. You see, I, I, I wonder if a lot of us think about God's plan for our lives and we think that God's plan for our lives includes all of the cuddly puppies and Reese's cups with zero calories in them. But God's plan for our lives is really about living in the day-to-day and using the interruptions that he sends our way to make a difference. You see, I, I firmly believe that people who follow Jesus don't need to believe in coincidences. Often, they are the moments that God orchestrated for us to reach someone they're the moments that God orchestrated for us to make a difference. They're the moments, the interruptions, the, the, the times and the places that God set aside for us to make a difference, to make an impact. But what happens is we just see them as interruptions to what we think our long-term goal is, to what we think our big vision is or our, our great long plan, or just maybe just us trying to get from point A to point B. And instead of treating those interruptions as moments that maybe God put something alive and, and is working on something, instead we just treat them as interruptions. And so what happens is we miss those opportunities. I, it happens to me all the time. I, I, I have plans and I have things, and, and if someone tries to, to get in the way or, or deviate from, from what I need to do that day, I have a hard time adjusting what I'm supposed to do. But inevitably, somebody will talk to me or, or be around me or something like that will happen, and later I'll be driving away and I'll think, you know what? That wasn't a coincidence that that person was there. It wasn't a coincidence that I had that time. And I think I dropped the ball. Because there would have been an opportunity there for me to have a conversation. There would have been an opportunity there for me to go a little bit further. But instead, what I did was just ignore it because I thought I had bigger and better things to do later. And I missed the interruption. I actually think this is a little bit about what's happening with with our church right now. You see, for about four years, we've been talking about reaching 50,000. Because for us, there are 50,000 people within a 20-mile radius of this building who don't know Jesus. And we believe that those 50,000 people, if they were to die tomorrow, would be sent to an eternity of suffering and torment because they are not followers of Jesus. And so we've been talking now for four years about reaching those people and about making a difference and making an impact. And, And I wonder if... Maybe we've gotten so bogged down by the 50,000 that we've stopped letting ourselves be interrupted by one. And we're so focused on reaching as many people as humanly possible that what's happened is we're not reaching anyone because we keep missing opportunities to reach one. 
And so I want you to know that we're still as passionate as ever about reaching the 50,000 people within a 20-mile radius of this building who don't know Jesus. We'll never stop pursuing that vision and those people, but we're going to shift our language for us to stop focusing on 50,000 and for each one of us to start thinking about reaching one. Reaching one person at a time. And just take a second. Don't, don't do it um, too dramatically because everybody will know what you're doing. Take a second and look around this room. And think about how many people are in this room right now. And imagine with me that each person in the room reached one person. Imagine with me that all of the people in first service took a moment to reach one person. And then what happened is as we reach that one person, the next person reaches another person, and we reach another person. Imagine with me the impact you can make on 50,000 by instead of choosing to focus on 50,000 by saying, you know what, it's time for us to reel back and just focus on one. To focus on that one neighbor, to focus on that one coworker, on that one spouse, on that one family member, on that one person at the coffee shop, at that one person we always see at the table across from us at the restaurant. Whatever it is, focus on one. And I believe that when we start focusing on one, we'll start to see the roadblocks and interruptions as our, in our life, not as interruptions or coincidences or happenstance, but we'll start to see those as the opportunities that God puts before us to reach one and reach one, and reach one, and reach one. Because those interruptions are the places where I, I wonder if we've been, we've been missing the forest for the trees and starting to see that God is working in a way that we didn't expect to help us reach the 50,000, and we've been blind to it. You see, I, I think that happens more often than not, that the way God works isn't through saving stadiums of people, but it's through reaching one person at a time. There's a story in the Bible. It's in the book of Acts, and it takes place starting in Acts chapter 9 and then through the end of the, the book of Acts. The main part of the story is the story of one guy who gets reached. And his name is Saul, and he's walking down the road to go and kill people who are followers of Jesus. But instead, Jesus stops him in a blinding light and says, why do you persecute me? And Saul's life has changed, and he becomes Paul. And he goes from a leader of Jews to a leader of Christians, and he goes to one of the, the most influential Christians of all time. But you know what Paul does for 98% of his life after he becomes a follower of Jesus? Is he reaches one person at a time. Paul spends the rest of his life dedicated to doing Jesus' work and mission all across the globe, of the known globe at the time in the, in the Bible. But what he spends most of his time doing is reaching one. One person at a time, one small group at a time, one little clique at a time. Paul starts to reach one. And he goes from city to city, from country to country on these things we call missionary journeys that Paul goes on. He goes on three of them in the book of Acts. It's a fascinating read. I challenge you and your family. It starts in Acts chapter 9. It ends in Acts chapter 28. You can read it over the course of this week. There's some crazy stuff that Paul goes through. But all the time, all the while, what Paul's doing is reaching one. One of those crazy stories happens in the book of Acts, chapter 19. If you want to open your Bible there or get out your phone and your Bible app, or it'll be on the screen behind me. But in the book of Acts, chapter 19, it's the story of Paul entering a place called Ephesus. 
And when he gets to Ephesus, Paul has this grand plan, right? For a couple of months and years now, Paul's been reaching people like crazy. He's been setting cities on fire with what at the time was called the way. We, we know it as following Jesus or Christianity. At the time, they called it the way. And he, as, he, as he continues to do this, he, he, he has this momentum, he has this plan, and he gets to Ephesus. And the first thing he does every time he goes to a new city is he looks for people who are followers of the way. He looks for the people we call disciples. And so he gets into Ephesus, and he's ready to go. He's rolling. He's, he's got this plan. But as Acts chapter 19 kicks off, we see that his plan's already going to be interrupted. It says, when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And so he thinks, good, I'm off to a good start. These guys already know. And so Paul asked, or asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And so there's this interruption that comes where Paul's like, all right, you guys ready to go? You ready to talk about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, oh, what's the Holy Spirit? We don't even know. And it's this first interruption that Paul has where he thinks he's got a team of guys ready. And the first thing he realizes is I have to reach this group before I do anything else. And so he asked them, what, what baptism did you receive? And then they answered, John's baptism. And, and there's a lot of technicality to it. We won't, we won't get into it today. But, but they sit down and they have this conversation where Paul says, John's was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after Jesus. And so Paul tells these guys, listen, you, you followed after this guy named John the Baptist, and, and that's good, but he was just preparing the way for the guy who was coming next, and that's Jesus. And he says, so you need to stop focusing on John and start focusing on Jesus. And so Paul's first success isn't in a large stadium. It's not by baptizing hundreds and thousands of people. Paul's first success is taking some people who actually probably thought they were already on the right track and reminding them, like, hey, you're missing the point here. And Paul's first success starts with just reaching a few people. And you wouldn't blame Paul if at this point he starts to think, all right, so the people of Ephesus know some stuff. The people of Ephesus, they've got it going on. He says, this should be an easy place to get some work done. The next thing that Paul always did is he entered the synagogue, the place where the Jews would worship. The Jews had been spending their whole lives looking for the Messiah, and he came to say, you missed the Messiah. He was here. His name is Jesus. And so Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. And so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I have to warn you, the lecture hall of Tyrannus is going to come back, and if you're like me, every time you're going to think about Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's okay. But his name is Tyrannus or Tyrannus. I'm not sure. We're going to go with Tyrannus so I can think about short arms all day. So this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so Paul goes to the temple, the place where in the past he had had the most success reaching people. They were already looking for Jesus. They just didn't know it was Jesus they were looking for. And in other cities and other countries, he had a great, easy success telling those people about Jesus. But he gets to the temple in Ephesus, and the people there aren't happy with him. And the people there, after three months of him giving his best arguments and his best discussions, they want nothing to do with him. And they start spreading rumors about Paul and about the other people who follow the way. 
And so Paul has another interruption. And it's in this interruption that he realizes, well, maybe, maybe my plan isn't going to work out this time. Maybe my plan isn't quite what I thought my plan needed to be. And he changes his plan, and he goes to the school of Tyrannus. And it's there in the school of Tyrannus that he meets people who don't necessarily have the same view of God that he's used to, but he meets people who are looking for something. Because the reality of everyone's life is that they're looking for something. They're searching for a meaning. They're searching for purpose. Every person you meet is looking for something, even if they're not sure they're looking for it yet. But it's there in the school of Tyrannus that Paul starts meeting people. And over the course of two years, Paul just has conversation after conversation, discussion after discussion, moment after moment with people who are there to learn, to seek, to figure out, and he starts telling them about the way. And he starts telling them about Jesus. And he spends two years reaching one person. He reaches one who reaches one who reaches one who reaches one. The entire time Paul is in Ephesus, his focus isn't on trying to get as big a crowd as possible and gather as many people as possible. The entire time Paul is in Ephesus, his focus is on reaching one. And so for us, this is, this is the shift I, I think that we need to be making is, is that we're challenging you and, and ourselves to make sure that we're focused on reaching one. One person at a time. We don't have to save the entire world. We don't have to save the entire state. But there's one person that we can introduce to Jesus. There's one person who we can start having conversations with. There's one person who needs us to see the interruptions that are about to come as opportunities designed by God to say, I think we need to have a conversation about some things that I believe. You see, because we, we miss out that God uses our interruptions and that God uses those little moments in our lives and in these opportunities that we don't even notice sometimes because we're so busy focusing on something else. But those interruptions are the very moments that God has designed and orchestrated for you and I to reach one. And so Paul spends two years reaching one. One of the big problems in the city of Ephesus was that they worshipped idols. And they worshipped the kind of idols that a, a person like a silversmith would make and they would put it in their house and they would bow down to it. There are people who are known as sorcerers and people who are very evil people who are coming around Paul and they're being changed and lives are being changed in Ephesus. So over the course of two years, through reaching one who reaches one who reaches one who reaches one, Paul is making an impact in Ephesus. And Paul's getting ready to leave Ephesus because now he feels like he's built a good foundation. He had a church that got started there. He can get them moving on. He can go on to his next city. And again, his plans get interrupted. You see, it's there that some people get upset. The more people follow the way, the less they're likely they are to buy idols. The less likely they are to buy idols, the people who make their money buying idol, building idols, the silversmiths and the craftsmen of the, of the city, aren't going to like it very much. So as Paul's preparing to leave, a silversmith gathers some other workers, and he says this. He's, he calls them together along with the workers in the related trades and says, you know, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. And in practically the whole province of Asia, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. 
And there's danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so he gathers the other tradesmen and the other builders and the other craftsmen, and he says, listen, this guy Paul's given us problems. And these guys get stirred up enough that Acts 19 tells us that a riot breaks out in Ephesus. And that people from all over are coming into Ephesus and they're, they're causing this stir and there's this huge commotion. And there in the middle of the city gathered all of these men who just start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For hours on end, they're just screaming at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And then there comes this moment where Paul finds himself in the middle of this crowd, this hostile crowd who doesn't like what he's doing. And it's there in the midst of the hostile crowd that Acts 19 tells us Paul opened his mouth to speak. But the shouting of the great of Artemis of the Ephesians was so loud that most had no idea what he said. And so you'd think that there would be this moment where you know, Paul's reached one, reach one, reach one, and then he gets to this, this almost stadium full of people, and he has this moment to speak, but most of them never heard what he said. Because again, God's plans were different. God's plans weren't for a stadium to hear, but for Paul to continue reaching one who reaches one who reaches one. And so this is what I have to say to you. I, I don't know what God has planned for your next 10, 20, 30 years. I don't know what God's design is for your life and what your, what your passion and your pursuit needs to be. But I know that what God expects from you today and tomorrow. And I know what God expects from you in the midst of the interruptions that come in your life is to see those people not as interruptions, but as opportunities to reach one. To see the, those quiet and calm moments when you think everything is getting messed up from your plan and to realize that it might be God's plan orchestrating you in that moment to reach just one. I always worry when we talk about reaching people that there's a, a, a group who will say, I, I, I got nobody to reach. My kids are good, my family's good, and I don't really have any friends. I worry about you. Not because you don't have friends, but I worry about you because that means that your time and your energy is so self-absorbed that you don't notice the day-to-day -day around you of the people you know who don't know Jesus, and you've never stopped to build a relationship with those people, and I'm worried about you. And so my challenge for you is if you can't identify a one right off the top of your head, if you can't find or think of ten people right off the top of your head who don't know Jesus, then you need to start stepping out and going to places that we would call the school of Tyrannus and meeting people who don't know Jesus. Whether it's, it's deviating from your norm and the people you hang out with all the time, whether it's changing your schedule, or whether it's just finding ways to intentionally build relationships with people around you who you've never bothered to get to know, it's time for you to start searching out and reaching out for one. Because there are people around you, there are people in your life 
There are people in your day-to-day who do not know Jesus, who are destined for an eternity of suffering and torment in hell. And if we're unwilling to step out and to reach those people, if we're unwilling to step out and to share with those people, to talk to those people, to give those people the hope of Jesus, if we're unwilling to do these things, then we're missing out on God's plan for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. See, I don't, I don't, I don't think I do this perfectly, I admit but I do think that it's a simple thing to do. And I don't want you to be intimidated by a conversation that has to start with, let me tell you about Jesus. But I I think that at some point, there comes a moment when you can share Jesus and you don't even realize it. Because what you may not realize is that every week you take an opportunity to, to remind yourself of Jesus, of who he was and what he did. Because every week at communion, we take the bread and we take the cup and we just pause to remember that, you know what? We were a broken, messed up, battered, bruised people and Jesus came to earth so that we didn't have to be broken, messed up, battered, and bruised anymore. And so your conversation doesn't have to include every answer. Your conversation doesn't have to include all of the understanding of deep theology, but it just has to start with, you know what? I was a messed up person. And then Jesus came to save. So as the men pass communion, I want you to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is is to remember that you were a broken, battered, and bruised person. And Jesus saved you. The second thing I want you to do is is to start thinking about your one. Start thinking about that person in your life who you're going to have a conversation with that goes, I've been wanting to tell you this for a long time. But I think right now is the perfect opportunity to tell you that Jesus' body was broken for you and his blood was poured out for you.